Looking here at Philippians 1 and 2, it's apparent that the essence of Christianity is to be spiritually minded. And really the whole message here is very practical. And because of the, uh, let's say, the theology that we've got in chapter 2 about the, uh, the nature of Jesus and um, what, what happened on the cross, and because this has been hijacked by people who want to try to justify the Trinity from that, we can easily miss the whole practical uh, thread that is running through all this. Now, that whole thing in chapter 2 about let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't consider it a thing to be grasped at, to be equal with God. Uh, that is all in the context of chapter 1, which is talking very much about our spirit or our mind. Let's just uh, start back there in verse 27 of chapter 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or be absent, I may hear of your state that you stand fast in one spirit or one mind, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And it's that one mind which uh, is ultimately the, the mind of Christ. What one mind should we have? It's easy to think that he means you should all have one and the same mind with each other. But that is not of itself, I think, what he's saying. He's saying you should have the one spirit, the one mind. And whose mind? The mind of Christ. Now, incidentally, I think that starting there in chapter 1, verse 27, he's actually making a number of allusions back to the, the very early uh, ecclesia that, that there was in Jerusalem after the resurrection of the Lord, they also are described as having one mind and, of course, driving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, you've got the, uh, the same thing. Be like-minded, have the same mind, and that is the mind of Christ, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And time and again in the Acts record, we read that the early church were of one accord, of, of one mind. And then in, in verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Twice we read there in Acts of disregarding our own things. Uh, take Acts 4.32, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, just as Paul has said here in chapter 2, verse 2, we also should be. Uh, neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own. And there in Philippians 2, verse 4, uh, we read about not thinking about our own things. Uh, but, Acts 4.32 again, they had all things common. And he warns Philippians 2.3 about not doing anything in a spirit of vainglory. That's very much Ananias and Sapphira. And he exhorts them later on in chapter 2, verse 16, to hold forth the word of life. That's exactly the idea of Acts 5, verse 20, that the early brethren held forth the words of this life. So what he's saying is that there should not be a, a cut-off in our mind between the early church and us today. And it's easy to read the record in Acts as, as history and to just assume that somehow that was them then, but it's different for us today. But the point is, we are their continuation. And this idea of there not being a, a cut-off between the events of history, uh, biblical history, and us today is very much continued with this whole theme about having the mind which Christ had at the time of, of his death. 
Now, in verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, It has been given to you in the behalf of Christ. It's the Greek word hooper. For the sake of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer in his behalf. Hooper him. Suffer for his sake, some of the uh, versions say. So, there's two uses of the word hooper here. For the sake of Christ... We are to suffer for his sake. Now, we say that Jesus was our representative, and that is right. He was, in that sense, not a a substitute, but a representative. That means, though, that we also are to be his representatives on this earth. That idea that he was our representative is actually quite demanding, because he represents us in heaven, uh, but we represent him on this earth. So then, that's why we are to have his mind. And this is, of course, very, very practical, um, because to have his mind, his disposition, means that we are going to be thinking, as he was, of the best interest of others. So there in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also to the things of others. Now, that Greek word translated looking, don't look to your own things, but look to the best interest of others. It's the Greek word skopos, and it's the one you find in telescope, microscope. Uh, The idea is of of the focus, uh, the scoping in, if you like. That should be our focus. What is best for others and for their salvation? Because that is clearly the mind that Jesus had as he hung there on the cross. Now, any form of condemning others, of belittling, comparing in a negative way, labelling, insulting, being sarcastic to other people, this is not a scoping out, a looking upon, a scoping in on their best interests. There are times a bit like, as a driver, you will know that there's times when you've got to think for the other guy who's coming towards you. It's no good just focusing on yourself. And so it is, especially with spiritual uh, relationships, that very often we have to think someone has got to be the Christian around here. Someone has got to be mature, and that someone is, is you. So then, it's amazing that he should ask us to have the mind that was in Christ. So then, as I say, there is not a cut-off between Jesus then and us now. This whole difficult passage in Philippians 2, this hymn, which is what it is, of praise to Jesus, is all talking about his mind, his attitude. It's not talking about a change of nature, as uh, is often assumed. It's not talking about that at all. It's talking about the progressive self-humiliation of Jesus. There's seven stages here in his self-humiliation, and there are seven uh, stages or aspects of his exaltation. And the point is that he is our example, that as he pushed himself down thinking of what was best for us and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, we likewise will follow, if you like, that same path to glory. And so, better just uh, in terms of exposition, have uh, 
a look then at uh, verse 6 who being in the form of God didn't think equality with God something to be grasped at but he emptied himself now that Greek word morphe which is translated form I don't think it refers to essential nature I know it's made a mess of in some of the translations but uh, that is not what it means and I think that's proved really by him saying there in in verse 7 that he took upon himself the form of a servant now the essential nature of a servant is no different to the essential nature of anyone else but his mental demeanor is different so I think what it's saying is that although he had the form of God he who has seen me has seen the father his character was perfect to the point that he didn't think being equal with God in that sense was anything to even be considered and, and I would argue that what, he, what it's saying there is that Jesus was in that sense equal to God in the sense that he had a perfect character there was no sin in Jesus he was perfect exact, the exact replica of the father in terms of his character so it wasn't something he even had to grasp for but although he had that spirituality he took upon himself the attitude of a slave in order to save us and some verses later in Philippians 3 verse 10 Paul encourages us to be conformable to have the morphe to have the form of Christ's death so we can take on his morphe to be conformed to the person that he was there as he hung covered in blood and spittle upon the cross and again these ideas are amazing that we can become that close to him and he talks about being made conformable and really all your sufferings and don't uh, underestimate suffering in your life don't think oh some poor dears they suffer terribly but I don't you do and you do that in order to be conformed unto him in his time of dying and so Galatians 4.19 Christ is to be formed in us it's the same word morphe it's a process of being formed now Jesus made himself we're told of no reputation verse 7 or as the RV says he emptied himself now this is not talking about anything he did up in heaven before he uh, became human that, that's just an assumption Jesus did not physically exist before his birth the whole language of the virgin birth and conception within the womb of Mary he shall be great shall be called the son of the highest those future tenses in the promises to David and quoted in Luke 1 all that is made a nonsense of if Jesus was physically up in heaven and I mean what are we saying that he was physically up there and physically came down through the through the clouds or something no when we read there that he emptied himself this is actually quoting from the Septuagint of Isaiah 53 verse 12 which is prophesying about his crucifixion he poured out his soul unto death in that sense he emptied himself particularly in his death it was all at his death that he did this he became a servant of all and that according to Mark 10 45 he became a servant of all in his death and I think you see his death prefigured really at the last supper John 13 verse 4 he took a towel uh, that's the same word translated here he, he took 
um, upon him the form of a servant, the form of a slave. He took the towel and girded himself, made himself look like a, a servant, and he was a servant. And he loved them unto the end, we're told, by doing that. And the love unto the end was, in the end, the death of the cross. And yet it was all, I think, uh, foreshadowed in his, uh, his girding himself as a servant and serving the others. So then he laid aside his own garments, for example, when he was serving them at the Last Supper. And that's exactly, of course, what happened when he was, when he was crucified. So then, Jesus was not a God who came down to us and became human for 33 years. He wasn't a sort of divine comet that sped through space and hit the earth for 33 years and ran off again. There are leading theologians that talk about a V-shaped Christology. By V-shaped, they mean he was up there in heaven, then he came down here to earth, and then he shot back up there again, like a, a kind of V. Not at all. In fact, it's the other way. If you want to talk about letters, I'd say it was, a, in spiritual terms, it was a J-curve that one of us, of our nature, exactly like us, rose up so high and set us a, a path to glory, not to physically enter heaven, but, uh, but to become like us. Uh, uh, sorry, but to, to give us the way to come to the Father and to eternal life. Now, this really opens up huge possibilities for being human. We tend to think that because we're so human, therefore we are so limited, and in one sense the frailty of humanity is, uh, is uh, well, very, very weak. But in another sense, there is a huge possibility that's opened up for us by the very fact that the Lord Jesus was of our nature, and yet he spiritually, as it were, ascended so high. Now we've read here in Philippians 2 of how Jesus was found in fashion, schemati, uh, as a man, and he humiliated himself and thereby was exalted. But in the next chapter, Paul speaks of himself in that very language. He speaks of how he too would be found, same word, conformed, to the example of Jesus in his death, and would have his body of humiliation changed into one like that of Jesus, the body of his glory. So we aren't asked to follow the pattern or, or schema or schemati uh, of, a, uh, of a God who became man, because it's something we can't relate to. We're asked to follow in the path of a man, the Son of Man, who rose up to the, to the very nature of God. Now, this idea that Jesus was some sort of divine comet that uh, flew into the earth and sorted out our problems and, problems and sped off again, when you think about it, that sort of motif, that, that idea of a, a sort of a superhuman hero that charges into a bad situation and saves the day and then speeds off again, this is very common. Superman, Star Trek... Or even those sort of Lone Ranger kind of westerns where there's some little isolated, sinful, hopeless little town in the, uh, in the American West. And in rides the outsider, the uh, heroic sort of cowboy, and uh, redeems the situation. And the, the, this sort of idea that Jesus pre-existed, was up in heaven and shot in here for 33 years and shut off again, it's almost like one of those movies. 
it fits in very much with what people want to hear. But when you think about it, that whole storyline means that we are sort of the powerless people who are saved by some some extra human person or somebody from outside our little town, from outside our situation, who's shot in here and uh, shoots off again. And it breeds what I would call spectator religion. Go to church, hear the preacher, watch the show, come home and spend another rainy Sunday afternoon kind of wondering quite what to do with yourself. And yet it's not like that. The fact that the Lord Jesus was not a divine comet that hit the earth and sped off again, but that he was a human saviour, one of us rising above uh, our own humanity to save us. That demands so much more of us. You can't go to church and hear that on Sunday morning and then go home again and and watch telly, uh, just wondering what on earth to do with your life. It's no longer, we're no longer spectators at a show. We're no longer looking at an icon from a distance saying, how pretty, how beautiful, how wonderful. Now, what was I doing? What was I thinking? No, this, uh, this grabs hold of us in a quite different way. And so, in Philippians uh, 2.11, we're told there that uh, Jesus has been highly exalted, and notice that it's to the glory of God the Father, which I think... Uh, it shoots a big hole in the uh, Trinitarian boat. Um, but anyway, the whole point of his exaltation is so that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, the exalted name of Jesus now, every knee should bow. So that should be our response as we come to the cross, that we bow our knees. But he's quoting there from Isaiah 45, from 20 to 24, and those words are quoted again, those words of Isaiah, in Romans 14, 10-12, where he talks about how this will be the case at the last day. That when the Lord is exalted in glory, at the last day, at the day of judgment, we will come and bow our knee before him at the day of judgment and confess before him. And yet those words are quoted here about our response to the cross now. And so in that sense, whenever you come before the cross, you come before judgment. And we have, therefore, in the breaking of bread, as we focus upon him there and us standing before him, we have a kind of foretaste of the day of judgment. That in the same way as now, as we come before him, as we break bread properly, if we really Uh, allow him there to influence our feelings now in the same way as the thoughts of many hearts are revealed as Simeon said they would be when the, uh, the, the sword would as it were pierce the soul of Jesus the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed uh, so that is what's going to happen when we come before the day of judgment so that makes perfect sense of why 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that at the breaking of bread we should examine ourselves so that we are not condemned because in a sense we have a a preview of our whole uh, judgment experience as we come before Christ at the uh, the breaking of bread and I've said before and I'll say it again that in Revelation you have this vision of of the judgment seat and 
Jesus enthroned on judgment, uh, a judgment day. And yet it says, John says that visually he saw a lamb as it had been slain. Freshly slain is in fact uh, what the Greek says. So he sees as it were silhouetted against the enthroned Jesus on the day of judgment. He sees silhouetted over, superimposed if you like, all upon that, the image of a freshly killed lamb. And I think that is to just bring the point out that because he was crucified and died in the way he did, he therefore is the Son of Man and he therefore is the judge of all. And exactly because of that, as I say, we who are now breaking bread have our foretaste of the day of judgment. And so then he urges them on the basis of this to look to their way of life because never again can we be passive and he he talks here about the need to witness by all means um, to be like-minded with Christ and therefore to have unity with each other to receive one another in the Lord uh, etc etc exactly because of having this mind of Christ and so there is in him and in our relation to him a unique uh, possibility for a unity which could never be achieved between and within human minds in any other way. And that is why, of course, in John 17, the Lord says that because of his death, which he had in view uh, when he spoke those words, because of that, therefore there would be created a unity which would be strong enough to convert the world. And yet, that unity is not simply um, happening to agree with each other on a set of theology, sharing a statement of faith. It is from having the same mind, being like-minded. And that same mind, as I say, it doesn't mean that uh, you and I happen to think the same way, so hey, we have unity. No. The like-mindedness, the same-mindedness, the one-mindedness, is in the sense that we have the mind of Christ. Each of us should take this seriously, that let that mind that was in him be in you. And if that is done on an individual level, division between us is simply not possible. If you are really responding to him there, and all people who are trying to put those barriers in between their personal relationships, all that means nothing absolutely nothing compared to that bond which we will have with each other on the basis of our having the mind of Christ